Well, hello today, everyone, at uh, our Half Moon campus, our Latham campus, and our new Greenbush campus. I want to give a shout out today to Pastor Greg Ballard and his amazing wife, Rhonda, their uh, incredible leadership team in Greenbush, and all of the leaders that are so excited because of this brand new launch. Uh, I had the privilege uh, of being there last weekend, and Debbie and I as we were there for each of those services, we're truly just touched and moved at what God is already doing on that side of the river, as we've been saying. And so uh, last weekend, they had 423 people. That is everything from newborns all the way through the most elderly person who attended. It was uh, a fantastic launch, and we're just uh, anticipating the people that God is going to draw to himself on the east side of the river. So could you join with me in just praising God and really thanking God at all of our campuses for that amazing launch? Thank you, God. We really were amazed. Thank you. And I, I, I appreciate you doing that because I know so many of you have prayed. You have sacrificially given to make that happen. Over two years ago, we started um, a two-in-two campaign. It really wasn't a formal campaign but we simply provided an opportunity for you to designate money to that if you wanted to. And some of you have given generously toward that. We're so grateful. And I want you to know that your sacrifice, your effort, your giving, your prayers, and your service have been richly uh, rewarded. What an amazing start last weekend was. We're so excited for the future. Saratoga is just about a month away and so we're looking forward to that as well. Please continue to pray, to sacrifice for that opening as well. God made us to be in relationships. Early on, even in the garden, God said it's not good for the man to be alone. And so he made a helper suitable for him. God didn't want us to be lone ranger creatures. He wanted us to be in relationship. That doesn't mean everybody needs to be married. Sometimes God's call for people is singleness for uh, the purpose of perhaps serving the kingdom better or, the, or whatever. But God created us to have relationships. The writer of Ecclesiastes, Solomon, looks at the situation of life and he says, two are better than one for they have a good return for their work. If one falls down, the other can help him up. But pity the one who falls and has no one to help him up. And then Solomon writes in Proverbs 27, verse 17, As iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. You see, when we as women and men are in relationship, we can grow more deeply in Christ. We can be challenged to be God, all that God designed us to be. God created us to be in relationship. Now, last weekend, we kicked off this new series that we're calling What Makes a Church Special. And last weekend, we talked about the church is special because it's a place where truth is proclaimed. The truth about us. The truth about Jesus and who he is. The truth about salvation. And it's so important that we understand that it's our message that makes the church a radical, countercultural kind of place and a movement like no other. But today, I want to shift gears dramatically. 
And last week we focused heavily on the content of the gospel and <clears throat> what that's about. And if you missed that message, I encourage you to go online and to check that message out. But today I want to talk more about relationships. And the church is special because it's a place where meaningful relationships are built. If you have your Bible with you, I invite you to open it up there to Acts chapter 2. And we're going to look at a few verses. We're going to pick up right where we left off. Last week, we saw that 3,000 people were added to their number that day. So in other words, this church now has 3,120 people. And what we sense here in the early chapters of Acts is that uh, they're growing very, very rapidly. So let's read uh, verses 42 to 47. Please look on as I read. This will be on the screens. It's also in your sermon notes. It says that these early believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe, and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. Selling their possessions and goods, they gave to anyone as he had need. Every day, they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. I'm amazed at the life of this early church. I'm astounded when I see how deep, apparently, their relationships really went. Now, I don't know who you are today, uh, what your you know, situation in life is, or what your journey has been. But uh, one thing that I've observed about life is that eventually, sooner or later, we come to a time when we really have some needs. It could be physical need where our health kind of begins to go sideways. It could be social needs. It could be some emotional stuff that's going on, and we have a need there. We certainly always have spiritual needs. We need to be closer to God, closer to our Lord Jesus Christ. But you're going to hit a season in life when you really need some help. And I want to ask you a question today. Who are you going to turn to when that occurs. Your neighborhood may provide a little bit of help if you know your neighbors. Your country club may provide some activities to keep you busy. Your place of work may provide some opportunities for you to get additional education and grow in certain ways. But the church should be a place where friendships go so deep that we stand beside one another, we have each other's back, we're there for one another through the good times and the bad. That's what God designed the church to really be. Now, as we read this passage just a moment ago, I wonder if you notice the two different kinds of groupings that these people kind of collected into. Did you notice it? There were two different kind of groups there. In fact, verse 46 really points this out. Every day, it says in verse 46, they continued to meet together in the temple courts. 
Now, the temple courts, it was called Solomon's Colonnade. It's where they came together, a big open kind of space that they had access to, and it could accommodate over 3,000 of them at one time. And they met together there corporately, a whole bunch of them in one place. Imagine that. I, I wish we knew more, don't you? I wish we knew how they were organized. I wish we knew if, if somebody stood up and gave a message to everyone. It doesn't tell us things like that. We kind of envisioned that they had really organized services like we tend to have. But I doubt if it looked much like that at all. But they all came together in one place. But it goes on to say they broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts. Do you see the two groupings I'm talking about? There was the big group and the small group. The big group and the small group. And I'm going to suggest to you, brothers and sisters, that those two groupings are vital for a healthy Christian life. I'm going to suggest to you that if you don't have both of those going on on a regular basis in your own life journey, that something is incomplete. I believe that so strongly that in the earliest days of Grace Fellowship, we were just trying to figure out what is membership in, in this particular local church going to look like we decided that we were going to put that kind of expectation even in our membership covenant. And that's what we've had now for, for 20 years. An expectation that people would regularly come together if they called this their church. And if they're an official covenant member, that they would be here when we gather together for worship on the weekend. And that they would also take on as a positive discipline being involved in a small group. In fact, I, I want to show you these on, on the screen. Uh, covenant expectation number four says, whenever I'm in the capital district, I will regularly participate in public worship, celebration and fellowship with a corporate body of believers called Grace Fellowship. That's number four in our covenant that we make when we become official members of this church. In other words, we're saying... Uh, if we feel a little bad on Sunday morning, we're not just going to quickly kind of blow off the, the corporate worship experience and go to Bedside Baptist that weekend, right? Where Pastor Sheets always has a soothing message. And there is a lot of turnover in the church as well. We're not going to do that. Because we realize it's not just what I get, it's what I can give. And so we ought to come to church, which is what we've taught for 20 years now, with a mindset, Lord, show me how I can lift somebody else. Show me how I can pray for them. Show me how I can share a word of encouragement or make a difference in someone's life. That's expectation number four. But expectation number five is the small group. Here's what we say. I will participate consistently in a small group for my spiritual growth and pastoral care. When people become official covenant members of this church, those positive disciplines are something they say, I'm into that. I'm going to do that. And by the way, we've been having people re-up that commitment every single year since we started it. Every single year. About January, we, we've been sending out a letter for people to renew that commitment. We want to know, are you still in? This is the first year we've not done that. We've intentionally decided to not do that every year. It's not because we've backed off on those or we think they're less important. Not at all. I think they're more important than ever. 
it's mostly just because of logistical reasons. It takes us a process of about six months to try to hear back from everybody and to make sure and to have conversations with people and all that. It's a logistical nightmare, really. So now we're going to do about every three or four years, just be aware of that. But we believe that these things are incredibly, incredibly important. But do you see it? Big group and small group, big group and small group. Now you may be wondering, Pastor Rex, why do you suggest that both of those are critical or vital to a healthy Christian life? It's because I don't believe you can get everything you need if you just got one or the other. I think you're going to be lacking something. Let me explain more what I mean. In your notes, there may be a section that looks something like this. I believe that the big group and the small group each provide something a little different. I'm convinced that big groups, big gatherings like we have on the weekend can provide more inspiration and perhaps more information at times. It's not that you can't get inspired in a small group, and it's certainly not that you can't get information there. Some of our small groups are fantastic at teaching the Word of God. That's awesome. But generally speaking, I get inspired when I get around a big group. Boy, last weekend in Greenbush, it stoked me up. When I saw both of those services, people coming together and worshiping in that worship venue, in that sanctuary. When I saw all those children streaming in, all those families, that's inspiring to me. It reminds me I'm not in this alone. It reminds me there's a whole bunch of people who are seeking to follow Jesus Christ and live for him as the Lord of their lives. That's inspirational. But in the small group, I think it's better for intimacy and for the deep influence that we all need to change. Again, it's not that you can't have an intimate relationship. You may be very close to someone on the, the weekend, a friend of yours, and you get together and you have a wonderful conversation over coffee or something. And it's not that you can't be influenced, it's just that I believe it tends to happen better in a small group. I urge you to make sure that both of those kinds of groups, big group and small group, are a vital part of your Christian experience. And if you need to become a part of a small group, I, I would urge you even today as you go out from the service to talk to someone at the information center at your campus and ask them, how can I learn more about this? How can I get involved in this? You, you can go online at the church's website at whichever campus you're a part of and you can get more information about that, all right? So all that is just foundation. And now with that as sort of a backdrop, I want to spend the remainder of our minutes together talking about since we were created to have relationships, right? Since the early church started with these dynamic relationships and interaction with one another, I want to spend the remainder talking about three important relationships that every true Christ follower needs to cultivate, okay? So let's jump into that. I invite you to jot some ideas down as we go. First of all, I would suggest to you that every healthy Christian, every healthy disciple needs a Paul-type figure in his or her life. If it's a woman, uh, it's a Pauline, right, type figure, okay? So this is for men and women. This is obviously not just for guys. This is for everyone in the body of Christ. 
Now, the prototype for this, why we call it a Paul-type relationship, is it's built on the prototype, if you will, of Paul and Timothy in the Bible. Paul was the great apostle. He went around starting churches. And on one of his journeys, he, journeys, he met a young man named Timothy, whose grandmother Lois and whose mother Eunice had taught him the word of God from the time he was just an infant. He had come to Christ apparently fairly early in his life, and Paul took him under wing and became a mentor-type mentor figure to Timothy. It was a very special relationship. So let me ask you, do you have a person like that in your life? A man or woman that you look up to, they're farther along in the faith, more mature, been down this road farther than you have, and you look to them to give you counsel, advice, wisdom in how to navigate the things of life. Paul and Timothy are not the only ones in the Bible, by the way. You've got Moses mentoring Joshua. You've got Naomi having a mentoring type relationship with her daughter-in-law, Ruth. You've got Elijah mentoring the younger prophet, Elisha. You've got Elizabeth in the New Testament providing some counsel and mentoring to young Mary. There's lots of examples of this. Do you have that in your life? God has blessed me throughout my life with an amazing, amazing blessing. I've had some of the finest Paul-type figures in my life you can imagine. One of them was Dr. Lewis Drummond. I met him when I was in seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. And he was a professor of evangelism. Now, he had gotten his Ph.D., in London at King's College in philosophy, and he had studied particularly the area of epistemology. He, epistemology. he was this very erudite guy. He could talk philosophy all day long. But the thing I loved about Louis Drummond, we called him Louis, is that Dr. Drummond was the full package. I'd never seen this before. I had seen evangelists who weren't really all that smart, and I had seen incredibly intelligent people who didn't care that much about evangelism. I saw in Dr. Drummond both of those wed together beautifully. That's what I wanted. I wanted to be the best I could be for God. And he inspired me. And he was older. He was probably around 60 years old at that time when I was in my early 20s. And he took me under his wing. We spent a lot of hours together. He counseled me through situations. He talked to me about theological ideas and issues. It was an incredible relationship. He died back in about 2004. But I am still realizing today what a deep and lasting impact he had on me. I quote him to Debbie all the time. I'm always giving Louisisms. I'm always telling her things that, that Dr. Drummond said. He was a Paul-type figure, and he opened amazing doors of opportunity for me. He took a risk on me when dozens of people had applied for a particular job with the Billy Graham organization. He stuck his neck out for me and took a risk on me. Wow. Do you have anybody in your life like that who can open doors, who can counsel, who's wiser than you? That kind of relationship is precious. The writer of Hebrews says in chapter 13, verse 7, remember those who led you, who spoke the word of God to you, 
and considering the result of their conduct, imitate their faith. Imitate their faith. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. Somebody said, what you are is God's gift to you. What you become is your gift to God. And a mentor has a way of stretching you like that and bringing out the best in you. If you don't have a person, a Paul, a Pauline-type figure in your life, I would urge you to go up to someone and say, could we have coffee and talk? Run some ideas by them. Maybe broach or open the subject of, hey, could we spend some time together? Now, it doesn't have to be real formal. It could just be occasionally talking, getting together. And by the way, I've been mentored by some people that would amaze you. St. Augustine has mentored me. Elizabeth Elliot has been a key mentor in my life. I've been mentored by Jonathan Edwards. I've been mentored by William Carey and Chuck Colson, although I've never met any of these people. They've mentored me through their books. That's a powerful mentoring relationship too. But there's nothing like a real-life person. Somebody once asked about Peter Marshall, what he was like. Peter Marshall was a well-known preacher, chaplain of the Senate for a while. And here's what somebody said in describing Peter Marshall. He seems to know Christ, and he helps me know him better. That's what a mentor does. They know Christ, and they help us know Christ better. Get that kind of relationship. And one of the things that's missing, by the way, in our lives, often when our lives tend to go off the rails morally, is we don't have this kind of person in our life. Second, I would urge you to develop, because everyone needs this, everyone needs a Barnabas-type person. That is an encourager, an encourager. Now, Barnabas, interesting name, he was one of the leaders in the early church. He didn't start with that name. In fact, look at Acts chapter 4. Look at these verses. You'll see that it says, Joseph, that was his original name, a Levite from Cyprus whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. That's what Barnabas means. Sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. Barnabas earned that name through his actions. The apostles loved this leader because he was willing to put his resources where he said his allegiance really was. And he encouraged not only them, but the whole church. Barnabas came alongside people. He partnered with other leaders to get the job done. He was a wonderful team player. I love the story of this 80-year-old pilot who was reapplying for his pilot's license. And he'd been passed through every year by a friend of his who had now retired. A doctor who had just kind of let him go through and get passed him through. And now he had a new doctor. And the doctor said, sir, there's no way I can pass you through. You're virtually blind. The guy said, oh, doc, come on. Flying is my life. I love being a pilot. He said, I can't even imagine how you've gone this long. You, can, you can't even read the big E on the eye chart. How can I in good conscience pass you through? 
He said, oh, doc, come on, please. It's everything to me. He said, the doctor said, by the way, I don't understand. With your poor eyesight, how have you even landed a plane? The old timer said, well, doc, it's really about teamwork. Doctor said, well, how does that work, teamwork? What do you mean by teamwork? He said, well, when it's time to land, I push down on the throttle and I look at my co-pilot. And he looks a little nervous. And I keep pushing down on the throttle more and we descend further. And I look at my co-pilot and he is beginning to fidget now. And then I press the throttle down a little more. And I just keep pressing it down and looking at my co-pilot. Pressing it down and looking at my co-pilot. And when he turns white and goes, then I pull back on it and we come in for a smooth landing every time. Now that's teamwork. Do you have somebody in your life who's like a peer encourager to you? Sort of a co-pilot in life that can help you land the plane, that can help you fly through bad weather when it hits you. We all need people like that in our lives. Now, I'm not going to name any of mine, but I've got at least two or three dozen Barnabas-type people in this church family who are tremendous encouragers to me. I got to tell you, I... I've got, some, I've got some brothers in this congregation, I'm, I'm, I'm being honest now, in the last 20 years, there are a few of them who've probably written me between 50 and 125 encouragement notes. I mean, they're relentless. You see, they don't want to see me fall. They don't want to see me flag. They don't want to see me be less than what God designed me to be. I say, oh, thank you for handling that sensitive issue with wisdom, Pastor. I'm going, wisdom? I thought I botched that one, but thanks for your encouragement anyway, man. I really appreciate it. Uh, thank you for uh, you know, setting an example in your marriage. Thank you, Pastor X, for the way you just deliver hard truths with a compassionate heart. And on and on it goes. They're, these people are amazing. Now listen. If you don't have someone, listen closely now. If you don't have someone in your life like that, you're likely to get stuck. And just like we need a Paul-type figure who can be a mentor to us, we need a Barnabas-type figure, some man or woman who can be a great encourager and help us get unstuck when we've really stagnated in our journey. Jean Nidich lived in Queens, New York. She was 214 pounds, and she desperately wanted to lose some weight. And so she went to the New York City Department of Health, and they gave her a diet plan, and she tried it. But after a few months, she was still over 50 pounds away from her goal. So here's what Jean Nidich did. She called together about six of her friends who also wanted to lose weight, and they met in her home, and they kept one another accountable. They encouraged one another to stick with it, and that's the way Weight Watchers got started. Today, Weight Watchers has over 1 million active members in 27 countries around the world. But what I found inspirational is that Jean Nidich, when asked, what makes you tick? What is this all about? What was the motivation behind this? 
She said, well, when I was a teenager, I used to walk through a park, and I would watch these moms who, I don't know what they were doing, but they were talking. They just seemed to kind of be gossiping about the, the daily stuff. While their young children were over here on the playground, and some of them sitting on swings with no one to push them. And so what I would do is I'd go over sometimes and just give those children a push. Just a nice push on the swing. And what I found is that when you give a child a push, pretty soon they're pumping themselves, pumping their legs, getting some momentum going. She said, that's my calling in life. I'm called to just give people a push of encouragement. That's what Weight Watchers is all about. Hey, hey, hey. You know, in a much more profound sense, that's exactly what the church is called to do, isn't it? We're called as men and women to come alongside people, be a Barnabas to them, and give them a good, holy, encouraging, positive push in the right direction. Some of you need a push right now. You really do. You know that you ought to get in relationships, but, you know, you've just been a little negligent on that. You just need a push. Some of you, you know that you need to develop some positive disciplines because that's really what God uses to change us. And if it weren't for the positive disciplines in our life, we'd all be the same year after year after year. You just need a push. Some of you, your marriage is really struggling. You know it is, but you've not yet done anything. You just, just need a push. Just need a holy, positive push in the right direction. Hey, listen, after this service today, at all of our campuses, seek some of the leaders out at a, maybe a designated prayer area or out in the lobby. Seek them out and ask them if they could just give you a holy push in the right direction. That's what we need. We all need people like this in our lives. And finally, as we wrap up, I'm going to suggest that you would develop a third kind of relationship. We all need a Paul. We all need a Barnabas. This one's huge. We all need a Timothy in our lives, a disciple. We need someone that we're helping because when we're receiving from a Paul and the mutual encouragement of a Barnabas, if we don't begin to give out, we become the proverbial dead sea. And the dead sea is dead because it's stagnant. It has no outlet. If you found your Christian life becoming sort of sitting and soaking and souring, which it is for many people, hello, it's probably because you don't have an outlet. There is no disciple in your life no timothy that you're pouring into we all need to have at least one timothy type person at all times that we're pouring our life into like dr drummond did for me like charlie riggs did for me like so many great paul figures in my life have poured into me through poured into me through the years and it's made all the difference now here's here's the deal Paul knew Timothy real well. You read the book of First and Second Timothy that he wrote directly to this young disciple, and you'll read things like this. Don't let anyone look down on you because you're young. 
but set an example for the believers. In speech, in life, in love, in faith, and in purity. Until I come, Timothy, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to teaching and to preaching. Do not neglect your gift, which was given to you through a prophetic message when the body of elders laid their hands on you. Be diligent in these matters, Timothy. Give yourself wholly to them so that everyone may see your progress. Watch your life and doctrine closely. Persevere in them. Because if you do, you'll save both yourself and your hearers. Have nothing to do with godless myths and old wives' tales. Rather, train yourself to be godly. For physical training is of some value, but godliness has value for all things. Holding promise for both the present life and the life to come. And on and on and on he goes. He knew Timothy well. He knew what his tendencies were. He knew where he needed a holy push. Do you have a Timothy, a disciple in your life? We all need that. Now, a few years ago, Rick Russo, who's a pastor in Colorado, told about going to a conference in Chicago. And uh, at this conference that he went to in Chicago, they had the chief of security come in at the end of this particular seminar. And and they were all these eager beaver kind of uh, uh, seminar attenders. They all had their name tags on, you know, and they were just ready for this great conference. And the chief of security came in and said, look, I know after this is over, you're going to be going out and eating out in the city and walking around and shopping and looking at some places. I, I, I want to give you some rules for survival in the big city of Chicago. And he gave them four rules. And here's what he said. He said, don't look lost, even if you are. Don't go out and pull out your map and start looking at it out on the street and looking up at the buildings, trying to get your berries. No, don't do that. Don't look lost, even if you are. And then he said, rule two, move quickly and with confidence. Even if you're lost, just keep going in a direction like you know where you're going. And maybe duck into a restaurant and then ask for directions or something like that. But move quickly and with confidence. Third rule don't ever make eye contact with anybody. And rule number four, when you leave this building, for God's sake, take your name tag off. Because when it says Buford from Utah, it's a dead giveaway. And somebody's going to try to take advantage of you. Pretty good rules for navigating the big city, I'd say. But you know what I've observed, folks? I've observed in the church, in churches just like this all across America, those seem to be the rules that a lot of people use in the church. They don't act lost even if they are. They move quickly and with confidence even if they don't have a clue where their life is going or what their purpose is or what it's all about. They act like they do. They never make eye contact because they don't want to be vulnerable and let anybody in. And they take their proverbial name tag off because they don't want anybody to get to know them. What a tragedy that is. What an incredible tragedy. The Bible says in 2 Timothy 2, 2, the things... You've heard me say in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to reliable men and women who will also be qualified 
to teach others. The writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 10, and let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Do you have a Paul in your life? Do you have a Barnabas? Do you have a Timothy? Now, I don't know exactly where you are on this, but your action step after this message might be to go out into the lobby and say to some leader there at the information center, how can I get help on getting connected? That might be a good first step. Some of you may know people like this who could be a Paul, a Barnabas, but you may need to connect with them this week and say, look, can we spend a little time together? i got a number of things going on. I really need to talk to someone. And it may be that you've got someone already in your mind right now that could be a Timothy in your life. I encourage you not to let this moment go by because these relationships are vital. God created us. God created us. To have relationships. Now I want to do this as we close. I'm going to ask our team to put up on there, and I realize this is out of order, but I'm going to ask them to put up the discipleship, the move discipleship process that we use here at church. This is something that I've talked about often, the move discipleship process. And I want us all to be real familiar with it. You've seen this before, right? We talk here at Grace about how we go from exploring Christ to beginning in Christ to close to Christ to becoming fully Christ-centered. But here's the thing I want you to hear. Here's the thing I want you to hear. The most catalytic thing that moves us from exploring to becoming a beginner in Christ is a relationship. A relationship. I've proven this over and over again by talking to tens of thousands of people in classes where we taught them how to share their faith and asked them, how did you come to know Christ? And I would ask, how many of you came because someone stopped you on the street and said, turn or burn, get right or get left, fly or fry, which is it going to be? Are you headed to hell today? Let me talk to you about that. Hey, sometimes that works, praise God, but I hardly ever got a hand up for, for that. Thousands of people, hardly ever a hand. How many of you read a Christian book? There were a few hands that would go up. How many of you came to Christ because you went to a Billy Graham crusade or something? There was usually a smattering of hands that would go up. How many of you heard a radio preacher, TV preacher? Occasionally there would be a few hands for that. And I went on and on. And I said, all right, are you guys saved or not? You're not raising your hand. I said, all right. How many of you really came to Christ because someone, a family member, a friend, a co-worker, somebody built a relationship with you you saw it modeled maybe they prayed for you maybe you had many conversations about it and it was because of that relationship with them the holy spirit used that to draw you to christ never vary always the number was 80 to 95 percent of those who'd come to christ came through a relationship God made us to have relationships. Father, would you please use this time today to stoke our faith 
and to focus our attention on the value of meaningful relationships. Father, I ask in Jesus' name that you would help those who are struggling today with all kinds of needs to realize that, wow, I need to intentionally seek out some relationships here. I, I don't probably need a professional as much as I need a friend. I probably don't need some cool course as much as I need just someone to talk to. I pray, oh God, that you'd continue to make your church healthy and strong because we focus on your priorities, your truth, and the relationships that you designed us for. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.